that gracious and uh, probably unearned praise. I, I want to say as well, because I'll probably forget before we're done tonight, but uh, it has been such a privilege to be here and to be so welcome. You all are great hosts, I'll tell you that. And uh, I can't imagine anyone being in this position and not feeling welcome from the reception I've received. And uh, God has done a good work. I, I only pray that you all have been half as blessed as I have been to have the opportunity to teach. If you've ever taught, then you know it's true. A teacher learns far more than the students. And I've learned some things myself as I've prepared. And uh, I never want to take those opportunities for granted. So thank you for that. And uh, we'll go to the Lord in prayer before we begin and uh, go into our last teaching in the series. Join me in prayer, please. Gracious Heavenly Father, I give you thanks. I give you thanks and glory. I give you all the glory for the work you've done during these seven nights at Castle Hills. Father, I thank you for the opportunity I've had to teach. And I thank you, Father, that as I've devoted myself to understand the word, you have been so faithful by your Holy Spirit to reveal to me, Lord, those things you want spoken to this room and to your followers, to your children here at Castle Hills. I thank you, Father, for that opportunity. I thank you, Father, that so many have given of their time to be here so regularly to make the Word of God a priority. I give you thanks for that as well, Father, for I know it is the Holy Spirit who gives us the hunger to know your Word. And, Father, with one night remaining, I pray, Lord, that uh, once again it would be your words, not mine, that it would be to your glory, not mine, and that the work that's done here, Father, would merely be the beginning. That what we hear, Lord, would not stay here, but would go with us. So that we may show you wherever we go. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, as we said, this is it. Our summer is drawing to a close. And so is our Wednesday night series, Thy Will Be Done, on the Sovereignty of God. If you've lived here in San Antonio for any length of time, probably only a year is enough, you would know that... Uh, even though the calendar says summer's almost over, uh, in San Antonio, it ain't over till it's over. And we're not even close to having summer over here. And in, I guess the same way, I hope this series stays with you for some time as well. I hope it has the potential to impact the life of this fellowship beyond simply these seven weeks. And in fact, even in, even in your individual life, I hope this series has given you a new outlook and given you some things to think about given you some scripture to consider. I, I have to imagine there's been times when this series has made a few people uncomfortable, maybe as uncomfortable as a San Antonio summer. And I know there's been a few folks who thought some of my Wednesday nights probably dragged on as long as a San Antonio summer, but you've been very forgiving and I appreciate that. And relief is in sight because we're going to finish tonight. Tonight's lesson, the final installment in this series explores what I would tell you is the most important and least appreciated area of God's sovereignty. And that is his sovereignty in and through his word, the word of God. Now, I'm not talking about the inerrancy of Scripture. If you were worried I was going to spend an hour talking to you about why this is true, well, that's preaching to the choir, I hope. And though that's an important topic, that's not my topic for tonight. Tonight's lesson, rather, is focused not on the inerrancy of God's word, but on the sufficiency 
of God's word. Which is a principle that I'm afraid is all but forgotten in many churches these days. Throughout this series, we've examined various aspects of God's sovereignty, and not all of you have been here every week, I know. I want to give you a, a connection between these seven weeks. We started talking about God's sovereignty in his creation over all things, wealth, health, prayer, evangelism, world events. And at various times, you'll no doubt notice, I took the church to task for things I believe we should be doing better for our immaturity in many of these areas. For example, I objected to the church teaching that our prayers are really designed to change God, to change his mind, when in fact the Bible tells us that prayers are designed to change us, to change our mind, to conform us to him, not the other way around. I objected to church teaching that God's desire is to give us material wealth in this lifetime, when what the Bible teaches is that we should invest the wealth he does give us in building up treasure in heaven. On the night we talked about health issues, I talked about how the church encourages Christians so often to see their physical health as a key measure of God's blessing. When Scripture teaches us that if you are obedient and committed to living your life as Christ asks you to, you're probably going to face earthly trials. You're probably going to face great suffering. I expressed my concern over how the church has twisted the Great Commission into a marketing initiative, essentially, designed to create believers as if we had the power to do that. But the Bible teaches that only God can create faith by the power of his Holy Spirit, and so the church is called to baptize and make disciples of new believers, to preach the gospel. And then finally last week I examined how the church has lost an appreciation, I think, of, of God's control over all things great and small, and that's led, I think, to a culture of fear within the church. Fear of world events. Fear and dread over what's going to happen tomorrow on the front page. Forgetting that we rest on the promises of a God who keeps his promises. We trust in God's goodness because he says he will work all things to good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. But if you notice, in each of those weeks... I proved my point. I established the truth of what I was trying to teach by going to Scripture. We looked at a passage or two in most nights as a way of understanding the truth on that topic. And I didn't do that because I had no other choice. It wasn't a habit. It's not as though there aren't other places that you can go to find information on those topics. It's because the truth is the Word of God. This is truth. So if I'm interested in the truth, this is where I go. It's a truth that's complete, lacking nothing. It's sufficient for all our needs, all our concerns, and for all instruction. It's because of the sufficiency of God's Word that I turn to it for the answer. So tonight we're going to conclude our series with a seventh lesson. I'm calling it Thy, uh, thy Word Above Thy Name. And we're going to move a little closer to home. You know, it's easy to talk about God's sovereignty when you talk about world events. That's where you think it applies. But I'm talking tonight about God's sovereignty in you. I'm talking tonight about God's power to do the greatest work of all, to change us through his word. One of the fastest growing genres of books, if you were to go into a bookstore today, is the whole area of self-help. 
Have you noticed that? The self-help area used to be one half of an aisle. Or it used to be one side of one of those partitions of books. Now it's several in a row. And if you haven't looked at these books, I'd be surprised because almost everybody owns at least one these days. But most of the books in this genre are secular. They don't come at their topic from a Christian perspective, certainly. They draw from modern psychology. They draw from New Age spirituality. They draw from mysticism and sometimes even medicine. Um, But they're all trying to do essentially the same thing. Solve some urgent life problem by rearranging your thinking or rearranging your organizational skills or helping build up self-esteem or teaching you to leave behind the things of your past or whatever they think might get your mind in the place you want it to be. It's interesting, though, that one of the fastest growing genres in Christian publishing is also self-help. Now, these books are much the same as the secular ones, although they often will have a Christian perspective, which is what they're hopefully going to do. They're going to bring in scripture, I assume, at times. Many of them do. Many of them try to apply biblical principles, which certainly is a a better approach than the ones in the secular world would provide. They promise to help us live that good life. I love that phrase, the Christian good life. They walk, uh, try to help us walk closer to Christ, try to help us live out our faith, in other words, to get closer to God. Well, the goals are admirable. We all agree with the goals. The the sad thing is that just as the world seems to now be hooked on self-help for their solutions, unfortunately, I'm finding more and more Christians who are just as hooked by the Christian version of that genre. That when their lives are facing the trials that are common to all of us, they run to the bookstore and they grab the latest bestseller from a Christian author as the way to solve their problem. And I'm not saying those books can't be helpful. It's not no books. That's not what I'm saying. But we should be concerned that that's the first place they go. Why are these books so popular? Why are Christians so enamored by self-help books? Well, for the same reason the world is. In fact, I would argue that the church has truly come to resemble the world in so many areas. Judging from how many social problems, how many persistent sins are now shared between both the saved and the unsaved world, how much we look like the world in so many cases, I think it's fair to say that the church is sick. It's on its sickbed right now. The church is weak, it's stunted, it's immature. Now, if you think I'm overstating it a bit, let me give you some statistics. These were published in Christianity Today. George Barna did the research. Christian divorce rate is at the same or in some areas of the country is actually higher than the divorce rate of the unbelieving world. Christians declare bankruptcy at roughly the same rate as the unchurched world. Roughly 10% of Christian teens report having premarital sex, 15% drink alcohol underage, 25% report physical or sexual abuse by parents. And in the case of the teenagers, the researchers suspect that the real numbers are actually higher because Christian teens have a sense of guilt over those behaviors and therefore their responses are probably somewhat depressed. They're probably less likely to tell you what they're doing. Unbelievers don't care. But honestly, is that any surprise, really? I mean, are those statistics really that shocking? Is it any surprise that the Christians that we know 
share in so many of the life failures at virtually the same rate as the unbelieving world does when we so often seek help from exactly the same sources that they do for those problems. Christians today are commonly found reading the same books as their unbelieving neighbors, watching the same television programs, following the same fads, investing in all the same quick-fix cures. I challenge you, ask your home group if you're in one. And as a result, I believe we end up just as spiritually malnourished as our unbelieving world around us. So why is it that so many churches are having so hard a time bringing up the faithful so that they might live a life that's called out, that's in the world but not of the world, that actually reflects Christ? By their difference, they're known. Why is that so difficult? And I believe it's because we've largely set aside what makes us different. We've set aside the very source of the power to deal with these issues. We've set aside Christ himself. How? Well, we've set aside the sufficiency of the Word of God. We're going to cover roughly three passages tonight. I'm going to try to keep to time, but those who know me realize that that promise doesn't hold much water. But they're short passages. The first one is in Hebrews. I want to take you there now. Hebrews chapter 5. It's only a few verses, but I hope it makes the point for me. In the time that that letter was written, the writer of the Hebrews was dealing with a church. He was contending with a church, the early first century church, that suffered... I believe for many of the same problems our church suffers from today. If you look at chapter 5, we'll begin reading in verse 11. And because we're jumping into the very end of this chapter, I want to give you just a little bit of an introduction. The, the writer at this point in the book has been preparing to go into a discussion about a very difficult and complicated subject, a discussion on a man named Melchizedek a priest mentioned in chapter 14 of Genesis. And the writer, as he begins to touch on the topic of Melchizedek, at verse 11 he has to pause, and he's irritated about this. He's not happy about doing this. I can tell you, if somebody came up here and had to stop my train of thought, it wouldn't make me happy either. He's pausing because he recognizes that the problems this church is suffering from are so severe that they've essentially lost the ability to understand what he's about to teach. And here's what he says, beginning in verse 11. He says, concerning him, meaning concerning Melchizedek, we have much to say, and it is hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God, and you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is an infant. But solid food is for the mature, who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. Therefore, leaving the elementary teachings about the Christ, let us press on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of instruction about washings and laying on of hands and the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. 
This passage may be familiar to you, but I'm going to put it perhaps in a slightly different context for you tonight. The writer is focused in his discussion of Melchizedek because he was trying to get to a much more difficult and important issue to this church. And he's now frustrated at the fact that rather than go where he wants, he's dealing with such an immature and unprepared audience that he has to stop and deal with some basic issues first. And for a few passages here, he basically admonishes this church. This is a verbal spanking, if you will. And their immaturity, in fact, has extended well beyond simply their inability to understand who Melchizedek was and why he was important. He says they become dull of hearing, dull there in the Greek, nathros, nathros. It means essentially sluggish, lazy. This church can't appreciate these difficult teachings because this church is not accustomed to the difficult work of hearing the word of God, of studying God's truth. You notice it's not a matter of ability. It's not a matter of training. It's not a matter of spiritual gifting. It's not a matter of their role in the church. It's because they have not put themselves to the effort and diligence necessary, to the commitment necessary to maturing in their faith by studying the Word of God. And then he says that if they had been attending to this duty, the writer should now have the expectation that they'd be teaching the Word to others. Now, we're not talking here about a spiritual gifting issue. We're not saying that their role should be teachers. He's talking about whether they know the word well enough that they can actually be a source of knowledge to somebody else, whether they had the ability to relate truth to somebody else. But, of course, they're far from that ability, and he's scolding them over it. If they had been called upon to teach somebody, they couldn't have done it. I often wonder how many people who have an opportunity to teach in one venue or another turn it down because they know inside they can't do it. They're not prepared to do it. But in this case, in the church that receives this letter in the time of its writing, it's even worse than the fact that they can't teach about Melchizedek. It's so bad that he says that they have need to go back to some elementary teaching that they probably had at some earlier stage and repeat it all. They need to go back to school again. They need remedial Bible training. That's what he's telling them. Imagine how much you'd like your pastor if he got up here one day and shook his finger at all of it, or everyone in the congregation and said that. That's what this writer is doing. He says they have need again to be taught the elementary principles from the oracles of God. Oracles means the spoken word of God which simply reflects the fact that the word came to prophets who wrote it down. He says they need to be retaught the word of God. And he says they're infants who really need to go back to milk rather than onward to solid food. If you were to take an infant, if you were to take an infant and you were to feed it solid food before it was ready for solid food, you'd kill it. Right? It would either choke on it or its digestive system is so immature it wouldn't know how to process the food. So we give an infant milk because that's the only thing it can take. And for an infant, milk is life. Milk is good. They need something easy to digest. They need something nourishing, of course, but it's got to be the right food, and milk is the perfect food. 
But at some point, somewhere along the way, that child's body reaches its limit on milk. What if you, as a mother, were to feed your child nothing but milk forever? What would that do to the child? How would that child turn out? It's not going to grow any further than a certain point because it needs the complexity found in solid food. And so the early years look good, then a few years pass, and now it's starting to show the signs of the weakness that only milk will bring, and eventually that child dies of anemia. That's what happens if you do nothing but subsist on milk. What was once perfect food now becomes completely useless for growth and maturity of that body. And in fact, taken long enough, it becomes its death. Growth ceases and strength fades and sight grows dim and life is extinguished. And that's what the writer's worried about for this church. They received the essential teachings, it says. They received the milk of the word. But when the time came for mature, they couldn't progress because they hadn't moved on to the meat of the word, to solid food, so they were stunted. What are those elementary principles? Wouldn't it be nice to know? I mean, wouldn't it be interesting at this point to ask yourself, well, where do I stack up against this church? Where do I fit in? Would I have been one of these people? Or, oh, certainly not. I'm sure we, we must have moved on beyond what he's saying to them, right? Well... In chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, he lists the elementary principles, the elementary teachings, the milk, if you will. First, he says, the need to repent from dead works and show faith toward God, in other words, the gospel message, is an elementary teaching for a Christian. We can all agree to that, right? As a new Christian enters the faith, it's important to teach them how that change occurred, how they were made part of the body of Christ, of how the Holy Spirit changed them and what it means to be saved by grace, of how it fits into the life of a Christian. Now that you're saved, what does that mean? What do our works really mean? Our works now, are they part of how we were saved? No, they're a response to your salvation. You've heard this before, right? This is milk. This is the basic teaching of the Christian faith. And yet, so often, Christians attend their regular Sunday service, Sunday after Sunday, hoping to be edified in the meat of the Word, only to discover that the main message in the sermon is yet again an exhortation to repent and believe in the Gospel. Where is the challenge to press on to maturity in that? Secondly, it says teaching on washings and on the laying on of hands, of baptism, in other words, of anointings and giftings, the work of the Holy Spirit, in other words. The writer says these teachings are milk, something even the newest Christians should be taught and understand. And just as with the gospel message, once taught, that Christian should be prepared to put those teachings behind, having understood them, and press on. Yet how many of our brothers and sisters remain, even to this day, completely confused about what the Bible says with regard to spiritual giftings or even baptism. Third, the resurrection of the dead. An understanding of our destiny to be resurrected in bodily form and to reign with Christ on earth for a thousand years. Here again, an elementary teaching for all Christians. How many of you didn't even know that was true? Finally, eternal judgment, the teaching from Scripture that all believers Will, or all unbelievers, will likewise be resurrected into a new body. 
so that they may be judged and suffer the penalty for their sin in the lake of fire. These, the writer says, are the elementary teachings which they should already know, they should put aside and move on from. And how many of our brothers and sisters in Christ really understand, much less could teach those elementary principles? I venture to say not many. This crowd, this room tonight, is probably not a good sample because those I find who are willing to come a second night of the week to attend a midweek Bible study tend to be a stronger than average group in their knowledge and interest in the Word. So if it was ever true that I'm preaching to the choir, it would be now. But consider those you meet with here on Sunday morning. In fact, I would tell you that I've met a few pastors in my day who couldn't adequately explain those principles. And if that's so, if I'm even half right, then where does our church stand today as compared to this church, to the church that this writer is writing to? I would suggest we're not much different. In most churches today, pews on Sunday morning are filled with spiritual infants still requiring milk or spiritual infants slowly dying on milk. And the food they should be getting is the meat of the word, the solid food that this writer says they should have progressed onto. Somewhere along the way, and I'm not sure quite why, Christians, it seems, have kind of adopted this crazy idea that only the pastor goes to seminary. Think about that for a minute. If seminary is so good, if it does such a good job of preparing someone for godly living and instruction on godly principles, why aren't we all there? Well, in practical terms, we can't all fit. So what they do is they send you someone who has that training, but then it's incumbent on that person to bring the seminary with them. Not sit in the office with doctrines on, on books and shelves that they know and no one else knows. That's the meat of the word. That's what keeps us from dying a spiritual death of complacency. Now consider verse 514. Those who fail to mature, who subsist exclusively and perpetually on milk cannot discern good from evil. This is not a warning in the sense of, you know, you might find it hard to discern good from evil. You might, you might have some tough days. No, the warning is they can't discern good from evil because unless you know the truth, you can't tell what's false. A church that can't discern good from evil is going to fall prey to teaching that in the case of the writer of the Hebrews led them to return to a life under the law, which was completely unnecessary, Christ having put an end to that. But in our day, it looks a little different, perhaps. Maybe today we succumb to false teaching on prosperity. Maybe we succumb to false teaching on healing, false teaching on prayer, false teaching on other issues, because we can't discern good from evil. You see, we hear good and evil, we think of a man in a white hat and a man in a black hat. We think it's going to be obvious. And then we forget the enemy of this book always does things subtly because he comes as an angel of light. If you think you can discern good from evil because you will see it instantly, you're the one Satan wants. And that church, that church that does not know Scripture and cannot discern good from evil, is going to accept as truth 
the falsehoods that come in from the unbelieving world. Falsehoods like evolution. Falsehoods like the Da Vinci Code. Falsehoods like the word faith movement. Falsehoods like New Age spirituality in all its many forms. Because we don't know the difference between good and evil. And if our church can't discern the difference between good and evil, then our congregations won't know the difference. And if our congregations don't know the difference, then we have no hope of showing the world that difference. God's sovereignty over his church and over its members, over us, begins and ends with the sufficiency of God's word. We know from a previous night here, as I taught it, that faith itself comes from the word of Christ. Romans 10 tells us that. But scripture also teaches, as I'm going to show you tonight, that the word itself is also God's one and only chosen way to mold us and conform us, to change us to the likeness of Christ. The only way. Hebrews 10, you don't need to turn there, but Hebrews 10:12 says this, but this man, meaning Christ, after he'd offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God from that time, waiting till his enemies are made his footstool for by one offering, he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. Do you hear those words? He says Christ's offer of himself on the cross perfected believers, past tense, done, finished. But those same believers, he just says then, at the end of that verse, are the ones being made perfect. How, how do I take something that's already perfect and continue making it perfect? It almost seems like a contradiction. And it's because the scripture is talking about, on the one hand, your position before God, and on the other hand, your nature, while you wait for your new body. We stand blameless before God now, not because of our own account, but because of Christ's account. And therefore, we are perfected already in that sense. But if you've ever lived with yourself even a minute, you know that you're not perfect. And that's what the rest of the phrase says. He says, we stand perfect before God, but we still experience imperfection and sin in our lives. And God wants to remove the presence of sin in us every bit as much as he has already removed the penalty of sin upon us. You understand that? He's not, he's not satisfied that you stand before him sinless because of the work of his son. Because he still expects us to seek that same perfection in our own lives, even while we wait to be glorified. And the means by which he does this is the same as by which he does this. He saves us by the word of God, and he sanctifies us by the word of God. Paul in Ephesians 5, as he's talking about husbands and wives, and he mentions how a husband should behave toward his wife, he draws a comparison to Christ and how Christ treated the church. And listen to the comparison. Husbands, he says in verse 25, love your wives. And then he compares them. He says, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. And then he says this. So that he might sanctify her. He gave himself up for the church so that he might then be able to sanctify her. And in doing so, he says, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word. You see, his, his death on the cross is a means to an end. It's not the end in itself. It put an end to sin in terms of our penalty. And it gave opportunity for us now to be sanctified. 
But if we stop at the point of justification and never have any consideration for how we live our life in the meantime, then we are frustrating the work of God in us. I'm sure you guys have heard probably at one point or another a joke that's told about a farmer who's in a flood. And as the floodwaters come up in his home, he jumps to the top of the building to get away from the floodwaters. And he's sitting on the roof waiting and he's praying to God to send, a res- send some way to rescue him. God, please rescue me. Help me. You've heard this, right? Most of you have. Maybe if you haven't, I'll tell it. won't tell it well, I'm sure. But he's sitting on the roof. The waters are coming up and a boat floats by and offers to rescue him. And he says, no, God will save me. Okay, he's a man of faith. Another boat comes by later. Again, the same response. No, I, I, I'm expecting God to save me. Thank you. Finally, as he has very little hope left, the water is almost to the top of the roof. A helicopter comes. And they lower a rope. And he says, no, I'm going to wait. God will save me. And eventually the water reaches so far that he can no longer stay on the roof. He's swimming and eventually tires and drowns and dies. And as he enters heaven in God's presence, his first thought is, God, I had so much faith that you were going to save me. What went wrong? Why why didn't you send me any help? Why didn't you send me any aid? And of course, as you know the punchline, God looks at the man and says, I sent two boats and a helicopter. What more could I do? And as old and worn as that joke may be, I want you to consider that in the church today, we're all sitting on the top of that very same farmhouse right now. All of us. And our congregations are there with us. And they're suffering with crumbling marriages in so many cases. And they turn and watch Oprah so that they can learn how to reconcile. And then they wonder why the divorce rate in the church is hardly different than it is in the world. And our congregations on that roof are feeling the same stress and emptiness of this hectic and overcommitted life that we all think is normal in America. And then we... Read Dr. Phil, looking for answers, and then we wonder why church participation plummets. And then people come to us with a lack of direction, and they have a misunderstanding of their purpose in life, and they don't know where they're to go. They have no fulfillment in their lives, so we give them a six-week program and a best-selling hardback, and six months later, everything is just the same as it was. Nothing's changed, and we wonder why. Our children stray into behaviors that... Mirror the world exactly. They hold to the same values. They try to dress the same, try to talk the same. And we respond, in many cases, with church programs for youth that resemble little more than an MTV concert or summer party. And then we wonder why so few of them ever show any spiritual fruit and why many of them leave the church altogether before adulthood. And as that flood reaches the rooftop, And one congregation after another, or one individual after another, succumbs to the flood. And we watch from our rooftop, wondering, why doesn't God do something to preserve that church? It reminds me of the story in Luke 16, if you want to turn with me. Luke 16, 27. In Luke 16, 27... There's a story of a rich man in Lazarus. You probably have read this, I hope. The rich man, an unbeliever, when he dies, he finds himself in hell, in torment. Lazarus, on the other hand, had been a blind beggar who 
had nothing in this life except torment. And when he dies, based on his faith, he is attended by Father Abraham in comfort. And the two can see one another and recognize their different situations. And of course, the rich man would love nothing better than to be where Lazarus is. And Abraham says, you can't cross. There's a chasm between us. You can't get to us and we can't get to you. So you will stay where you are. And in Luke 16:27, here's what the rich man says. He said, then I beg you, Father, that you send him to my father's house, meaning I want you to send Lazarus back from the dead to my father's house. And in verse 28, he says, for I have five brothers in order that they may that he may warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. And Abraham says, well, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. But he says, the rich man says, no, Father Abraham. But if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And Abraham said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. Abraham tells that rich man that his brothers can look to Moses and the prophets, the Torah and the prophetic books of the Old Testament. In other words, the Bible, the word of God. They can look there for their warning. But the rich man says, oh, no, (laughs) no, I know my brothers. Trust me. No, that isn't going to work. They don't believe in the Bible. They're not going to read the Bible. They don't care about the Bible. No, no, no. If they had something spectacular, you know, dead men coming up out of the grave, ooh, that would get them. How can you deny that? I mean, that's going to get them. If it's just something bigger and better and newer and popular if it's what everyone else is reading and looking at, if it's what's on the bestseller list, if it's whatever seems to be gaining an audience, that'll get them. That's going to fix the problem. And Abraham says, you know what? If the Word of God, the Word of the Creator Himself, is not good enough, then nothing else is going to work either. And friends, if the Word of God is not enough to address our hardships and our weaknesses and our failures and our heartaches and the endless number of other potholes we experience in the road of life, then nothing else is going to work either. Because as we sit atop that farmhouse waiting for Martha Stewart to save us or another chicken soup for the soul to come along or another book about the Bible, another book about the Bible... And one by one, we drown, waiting for the solution we know God's going to send our way. As we live our life the way the church of the letter of the Hebrews seems to, a life without study, without much time spent in the Word, with no hope of ever understanding the truths that are there, much less ever knowing how to choose good from evil, and our inability to overcome all the plagues that accompany a life marked by those wrong choices. then I don't think God is going to send us anything better than what he's already sent us. Because if God's sovereign choice was to use his word to accomplish his work, 
then why are we expecting him to come up with plan B to suit our needs? He says it is his word that will go out and not return void. He says it is his word through which he created all things and sustains all things. He said it is his word that will make his church holy. He says, as is written in Psalms 138, verse 2, you have magnified your word above all your name. God has magnified his word even above his own name in importance. We make a big deal out of claiming things in the name of Jesus. He says this is more important than that. This is his word. And is there any wonder why he won't give satisfaction to those who would forsake his word and go seeking answers elsewhere? How much glory does he get when you read a best-selling book and declare that was the answer to my problem while this sits on your shelf? Sovereignty of God means he chooses to work miracles in the lives of his people through his word rather than through other means so that when the work is done, he might rightly receive the glory for it. So, as we cry out to God, as I said, asking for why he's left us in despair and our sin and our hurting lives, the father, on the other hand, is standing before us just as he did in that old joke. And he's saying, I sent you the best help I could. I sent you my son. The Word. And He is now in you in the form of the Holy Spirit. And He is now before you on the pages of that book you hold. And every page in that book, every page testifies to Christ. You open your Bible, you point to a page, I'll show you Christ. But so often, the church sets it aside. sits on the shelf. It's a reference work. When you have a question, you pull it down, you look it up. Oh, yeah, okay, put it back. Like the dictionary. And when we get stuck and look up a passage and pull it down, or when we go to church, drag it along and never unzip it, then we, just like that church from the writer of the Hebrews, we are weak and we are anemic and we're going to struggle to live the victorious life that the Bible promises to those who give themselves to it. And I believe it's this way because somewhere along the way we've pushed the Word of God aside and said only pastors need to know this. Only teachers need to know it. And of course many of them have abrogated abrogated their responsibility to do that very thing. We've declared the Bible is useless. It's out of step with our times. We'd rather turn to Cosmopolitan Magazine and Horoscopes for relationship advice. Because we don't have the patience to let God work through us And with us, through those struggles, through his word, things that will take time, it will take years. The answers are not going to come quickly. But we want them quickly, so we'll read paperbacks about the Bible rather than read the Bible itself. I once heard a pastor say from a pulpit in a church I sat in one day, that his chief concern among that congregation was that the people were spending too much time studying their Bibles. And if I remember right, he said he would rather have had them spend that extra hour, if they can only give one additional hour each week, one to Sunday service and then one more, he would much rather that extra hour be spent in a home group. Because that satisfied his agenda, I believe. And in this church's case, these were home groups that rarely opened a Bible, that were led by people who knew little or nothing of Scripture, 
And yet we're expected to counsel these people in their groups on all of life's challenges. It was the blind leading the blind. Now, I'm not against home groups, as I hope you can understand. But I'll give you a different direction than I heard that day. If you only have one hour a week beyond Sunday service to give to your walk, shame on you. But if you only have one hour, spend every second of it with this. And I am not suggesting that we abandon all other church activities. This is not all or nothing. I would prefer you spend many hours a week doing many good things. In fact, I would just settle for most Christians simply putting equal time into God's Word, putting it on a par with anything else in their schedule. If our job is about repairing broken lives, of building up the faithful, of equipping the saints for ministry, of training in righteousness, then our tool is the Word of God. Like Paul says in 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. In fact, I'm so convinced that the sovereignty of God by the sufficiency of His Word is true that I believe if we truly want to see a revival, we use that word a lot, we'd love to see a revival, right? If you really want to see a revival in this church or any other, in your community, or just in your home group, let's say, then try this. Study the Word of God. Don't study books about it. Study it. And as Paul says in Romans 12, 2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. And I will tell you that you must demand that your leadership would inspire you in that same way. And final passage for the night. Turn with me to 2 Kings chapter 22. God willing, we're going to read the entire chapter, but the exposition will be much shorter. No introduction. Let's just begin reading in verse 1. Josiah was eight years old when he became king, and he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. His mother's maiden name was Jedidah, the daughter of Adadiah of Bozkath. He did right in the sight of the Lord, and he walked in all the way of his father David, nor did he turn aside to the right or the left. Now, in the 18th year of King Josiah, the king sent Shaphan, the son of Azaliah, the son of Meshalam, the scribe, to the house of the Lord, saying, Go up to Hilkiah the high priest, that he may count the money brought into the house of the Lord, which the doorkeepers have gathered from the people. Let them deliver it into the hand of the workmen who have the oversight of the house of the Lord, and let them give it to the workmen who are in the house of the Lord to repair the damages of the house, to the carpenters and the builders and the masons, for buying timber and hewn stone to repair the house. Only no accounting shall be made with them for the money delivered under their hands, for they deal faithfully. The nation of Israel had experienced many years of pain, many years 
of turmoil at the hands of evil kings, of ungodly kings, and their poor leadership. If you know the history of the nation of Israel, it was a ups and downs, ups and downs kind of experience through many different kings. By the time of Josiah, the word of God had all but disappeared from the nation of Israel. In fact, it was completely forgotten. Completely. The temple was in disrepair. In fact, it was worse than that. The sacrifices had completely ceased and the building itself was in disrepair and was being used to house idols for idol worship. And since the word of God had been removed from the minds and the hearts of the people, they no longer knew the difference between good and evil. And they followed their flesh. But God rose up a man, Josiah, put him in power, and he gave him a heart to know him, a heart like David. And he's desire as he became 18 was to restore the God, God's house, the temple, back to its former glory. And so, as we saw at the beginning of this chapter, he instructs priests to take money, interestingly, money donated by the people who would use that temple for idol worship, and take that money and begin repairing the temple. At the very end there, he says to the workman, or he says to the priest, you don't have to check up on the workman's use of this money, the point being that Anyone who Josiah trusts enough to do work on the house of the Lord is going to be somebody trustworthy with money. You don't need to waste your time checking up on them. And so the work begins in verse 8. Then Hilkiah, the high priest, said to Shaphan, the scribe, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. And Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan, who read it. Shaphan, the scribe, came to the king and brought back word to the king and said, Your servants have emptied out the money that was found in the house and have delivered it into the hand of the workmen who have the oversight of the house of the Lord. Moreover, Shaphan the scribe told the king, saying, Hilkiah the priest has given me a book. And Shaphiah read it in the presence of the king. When the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his clothes. Then the king commanded Hilkiah the priest, Ahakam, the son of Shaphan, Akbor, the son of Micaiah, Shaphan, the the scribe, and Asaiah, the king's servant, saying, Go inquire of the Lord for me and the people and all Judah concerning the words of this book that have been found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that burns against us, because our fathers have not listened to the words of this book to do according to all that is written concerning us. So Hilkiah, the priest, Ahikam, Akbor, Shaphan, and Asaiah went to Huldah, the prophetess, the wife, of Shalom, the son of Tikvah, the son of Harhas, keeper of the wardrobe. Now she lived in Jerusalem in the second quarter. And they spoke to her and she said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Tell the man who sent you to me, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I bring evil on this place and on its inhabitants, even all the words of the book which the king of Judah has read. Because they have forsaken me and burned incense to other gods, that they may provoke me to anger with all the works of their hands, Therefore, my wrath burns against this place and it shall not be quenched. But to the king of Judah who sent you to inquire of the Lord, thus shall you say to him. Thus says the Lord God of Israel regarding the words which you have heard, because your heart was tender and you humbled yourself before the Lord when you heard what I spoke against this place and against its inhabitants, that they should become a desolation and a curse. And you have torn your clothes and wept before me. I truly have heard you, declares the Lord. Therefore, behold, I will gather you to your fathers and you will be gathered to your grave in peace and your eyes will not see all the evil which I will bring on this place. So they brought back word to the king. When's the last time you read a chapter in 2 Kings, right? So as work proceeds, the workmen come across this most curious discovery. You read it with me. 
They come across the word of of God. They come across the law. And as the law is read before the king, the words so strike him that he immediately appreciates their importance. He tears his clothes in mourning and in distress. Now, this was not, by the way, a people in this king's day. This is not a people who were not interested in religion. This is not a people who were not involved in religious activity. If you put it in today's context, we're talking about a place that looked very churchy. They prayed a lot. They had idols. They sacrificed. They tithed. But they did it without the Word of God. And so they couldn't discern good from evil. They had the appearance of holiness without the substance. But these words were so foreign, so strange to the king's ears, that in verse 13 he asked the priest to go inquire, what do they mean? Help me understand what we just heard. And he does it for his sake and for the sake of all of Israel. And what God says to this people is that based on how they treated his word, they will now see the penalties that come out of it. For how they tossed it aside, how they buried it beneath their idol worship and forgot the words and neglected it. For that, there will be a penalty. And the final answer comes to the king from the prophetess, that God will bring judgment on those who trampled his word. But he is going to spare it during the day of Josiah. Realize that as long as Josiah was alive, he never saw any of these things happen. Therefore, those who were alive with him were spared. Not for their action, but because of their king's obedience to the word. And with that, I want to end this series with two final thoughts. If you seek the power to live truly the faith you claim, if you seek to know the peace that surpasses all understanding, if you seek to hear your Lord on the day of your glorification saying, well done, good and faithful servant, then you need to spend time with Him now. And you need to spend time in His care and under His instruction in His Word. And so do those around you. Service is good. Fellowship is helpful. Prayer is important. Home groups have their place. And while the Christian bestseller list may from time to time offer encouragement, only the Word of God has true power. The sovereignty of God through His Word means that only the Word has the power to change. You, those you love, what you do, what you think, who you are. And just like Josiah, if those in leadership take that commission to heart, though not everyone in their congregation may be obedient, they too will see the blessing of a man who leads their congregation by the word of the Lord. And that brings me to my final thought. I know you, as a church, are embarked on a search for a pastor. And although no one's asked my advice, I'm a little hurt about that. I thought maybe somebody would like to know what I thought, but... Nevertheless, I'm going to offer you some nonetheless. I'm going to offer you some advice. As you consider the qualities of what would make a good pastor, as you interview candidates, as you see who the Lord brings you, you're going to list probably characteristics that you believe will determine their success. You're going to consider each candidate in who they are and what they've done. And that's what you should do. But consider this as well. Though a man can deliver the most entertaining 25-minute sermon you've ever heard, 
Though he has the resume of Billy Graham, though he has the accounting skills of Alan Greenspan, the counseling skills of James Dobson, and the management expertise of Jack Welch, though he has all those skills, if he has no delight in exploring the mysteries hidden in the Word of God, if it is his habit to present his flock with the same diet of milk Sunday after Sunday and shrinks from declaring to his congregations the full counsel of God, as Paul says in Acts, the height, the depth, the breadth, the challenge of it, the doctrines of it. If he will not exhort the congregation to study the word for themselves, to make knowledge and understanding of the meat of the word their priority in obtaining the holiness that pleases God, if he will not make knowledge of the word and the ability to teach it a principal qualification for spiritual leadership in his congregation, then he may be effective. And he may be sincere, but his ministry will lack the power to bring maturity and true growth. For he will have come in his own power. But if you will first seek a man who devotes himself to the scriptures, a man who would not neglect the teaching of the word even to feed the widows of the deacons, a man who believes there's no better solution for that which troubles the soul than the one God has already provided for in His Word, in this book. If you find such a man, a man who would weep over the discarding of God's Word, just as Josiah did, then you will have found more than a man and more than a pastor. You'll have found a man of God who comes with the power of God. I pray sincerely that God will send you that man. And by his instruction, you all will grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. As Peter wrote in 2 Peter 1:19, So we have the prophetic word made more sure, to which you do well to pay attention as a lamp shining in the dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. On a couple of nights I've ended in Psalms, I will do so again tonight. Psalm 1. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law he meditates day and night. He will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. And in whatever he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but they are like chaff, which the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Father, I pray that all that's been taught, all that's been said, all that we've done over the course of this series pleases you. That it has been truth, Father, and where it hasn't, that your Holy Spirit has taken it away and replaced it with your truth. That it has glorified you because it is the very words you've given us by your Holy Scripture. 
And Father, I do pray that as your word promises, those who meditate day and night on your word will prosper in all they do. I pray, Father, for this congregation that as they study the word and as their leadership studies and teaches the word, I pray, Father, that all that they do may prosper as well for your glory. And that whomever, Father, you have planned even now to send in leadership would be a man of the word. For their sake and for your glory. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.